What is up, guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got another special guest here. Chris, let me say the last name, my man. I don't want to butcher it. Are you good? Let's, let's, let me hear you try it. Go I said Barricat. Yeah, Barricat. Okay. Okay. Hey, I, I just didn't want to mess it up because you know I've been living my whole life. Ibrahim, Ibrahim. I like. I get it all over. Even when I was playing college basketball, like number twenty-one, Adam Ibrahim. I'm like, bro, I've been here for two years. How y'all still messing up my last name? Yeah, so I always yeah, yeah. try to be cautious with all of that. So, um, my man Chris, you know, he's been in the trenches. He's still, you know, a, as we were kind of discussing before, he teaches as well as the University of Tampa. Uh, but I don't want to steal your thunder too much for our listeners that have no idea who you are. Could you go ahead and introduce yourself, please, sir? Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, super quick background is basically I'm from Long Island, New York. Um, initially, when I started off in college, I thought I was going to go a physical therapy route as I was working in those clinics for quite a while. Um, so I was trying to find like a good undergraduate degree that would provide me with a good foundation. So I studied athletic training, which is basically a hybrid between rehab and emergency care. So I had a lot of the rehab education under my belt. And then, um, as time went on, I just got more and more involved in bodybuilding. And, um, it was basically my junior and senior year of undergrad where I was like, eh, I don't know if this this PT thing's going to be perfect for me. Um, I was kind of getting sick of it already, just being an aide as a, as a young man. And um, I saw this exercise and nutrition science program at UT, and they were studying a lot of topics related directly, like directly involving bodybuilding. So I was like, all right, let me check out this program. Ended up studying there, got my master's there. And then immediately after graduating, they brought me on board to teach part-time. So I've been teaching there part-time since 2017, and I've been in the lab since 2016 doing research with the team there. So it's been a great experience. And then besides that, um, I coach full-time. I'm not, I'm not a teacher full-time. I coach full-time, and I still get in the gym, get in the trenches, and I'm still competing as well. So um, I'm about eight weeks out right now from my fourth competitive season in natural bodybuilding. Well, my man, so how are you feeling right now? Like, I mean, eight weeks is still some time, but I'm sure it's been a while from what I what I understand. So how are you feeling right now with it? Yeah, um, I would be lying if I said I'm feeling great. I was feeling great until about from like 21 weeks out to 12 weeks out. I felt great. And then once I got to like 10 weeks out, nine weeks out, eight weeks out, I'm starting to feel it. Um, but I'm doing I'm doing I'm doing just fine, man. We're going to get through this. Honestly, it, it's a. It's funny that you mentioned you were going PT because Adam, myself, and I mean, I know a few others, but all three of us were going for physical therapy at one point and we are all transitioning to something else now. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that says anything about physical therapy, but I, I just, you know, I think from my perspective, it's like, it's a doctorate level now. And yet the income to, you know, I guess loan or, you know, payment is just not there yet. And I think talking to a lot of PTs and we've had a couple DPTs, Kairos, and they're all like, Hey man, it's, it's a doctorate level, but just the payment. And I guess even the education is not at that level yet. So I think a lot of people are getting hesitant and, you know, I think individuals like Chris, Eric Helms are showing that that's just not the only way you can go. 
Um, I think, you know, that's, that's the exciting part about, I think anything exercise and fitness related, you can, the limits are untouchable. Un, un, you can do whatever you want as long as you work hard. 100%. Yeah. I think um, it's not necessarily like the, it's not, there's not an issue with physical therapy as a whole. I think it's more so the healthcare system. Um, a lot of clinics that do want to maximize income, they have a large quantity of patients, but very poor quality of care. And then if you are a clinician or a practitioner that actually cares, it's going to be more difficult for you to make good money, um, whether you work for someone else or work for yourself, if you're not doing high numbers. So the, the system sucks overall, man. I feel like if, you know, any of the three of us did go that route, we would be great clinicians that really cared and wanted to take care of people. But the way that the system is, um, which is kind of in parallel with a lot of different fields within healthcare, it just sets the patient up for failure and even sets the clinician up for failure because they can't do the best job possible. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, that's what kind of turned me off. Yeah. But going into the outline, we have a, a big nutrition focus, which makes sense because you mentioned before the podcast that you teach only a nutrition course currently. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Something that I actually didn't learn. I don't, maybe you can touch on if you teach this in your classes, but carb cycling, it's something I've heard of. Of course, it's something that's popular. It's something that in the bodybuilding industry, that's, it's, it's widely known. Uh, is this something that should be taught at a university level or what is the intention for this? I mean, yeah. So a lot of people utilize it in different fashions right now. I think it got popular more so in the uh, fat loss space as a means to essentially push your deficit for an extended period of time, have a larger calorie deficit for X amount of days, and then give your body a little bit of a break by having a high carb day or a couple of refeed days. And then people got into this carb cycling thing. Um, and I think there is practical application there that's beneficial for fat loss. Um, and then I've also seen people just implement carb cycling in a very structured manner without actual good purpose or good design. And that's where I think people are really missing the boat. So a quick example of that, which I see all the time is like people doing low, medium and high days, regardless of what their training looks like, um, regardless of what their activity looks like, just because they think carb cycling is magical and it's like going to benefit them in some way. And that's, that's the last approach you want to take. Um, so the way I generally recommend utilizing some sort of carb cycling is extremely logical. So most of my clients have training day nutrition numbers and non-training day nutri nutrition numbers where on their training days, they're going to have higher carbohydrates, slightly lower in fat. And then on their non-training days, their total calories are going to be a little bit lower than their training days because they're burning fewer calories that day. And their fats are going to be a tad higher and their carbohydrates are going to be a tad lower since they're not utilizing as much glucose or doing anything that is glycolytically demanding, right? Um, so that's a very logical approach. And then you can add on a third day, which would be like your super high carb days or your refeed days. And that's something I generally auto-regulate based on how someone's feeling, how someone's performing, how they're looking and what's going on with their body weight. So there's so many um, variables to take into consideration when it comes to carb cycling. Now, something that I've always, you know, I've asked many coaches this is now that you've kind of brought it up is, you know, 
nutrition on training days and non-training days. And it seems like you're utilizing it because, hey, there's a physical demand of utilizing carbohydrates on your training days. Have you ever, I guess, had an individual or a client say, hey, coach, I'm just not feeling this, you know, all over the place. And I'd rather just kind of be on autopilot and just go, you know, maybe five, six, seven days out of the week. And then, as you said, maybe auto-regulate depending on how that individual feels. How, how do you approach that aspect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some clients do prefer just to have a very similar approach every single day to, I don't even want to say take the thinking out of it, but just to really nail down that structure. Um, and I think that can be super important for them if that's going to improve their uh, adherence and their sustainability. Because at the end of the day, what you do consistently matters way more than like what's on the plan if you're not actually adhering to it. Um, so yeah, th there's options there. But from an optimization standpoint, I do think it makes sense. Um, not only because when you're training, you want to have more carbs coming in for performance and recovery purposes, but also on your non-training days, when you are in a calorie deficit, I like bringing fats up because fats are an essential nutrient that can be really beneficial for hormonal production and everything like that. Um, and it also provides each client or each person, the ability to kind of fit in different foods or fattier sources of protein or things they won't typically eat on other days. Um, so for me, that's my preference, man. It's something I've been doing for quite a while now. Yeah. And I totally agree. And I think predominantly for your clientele, it's very niche bodybuilding type individuals or individuals that are pretty serious, if I'm correct, correct? For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how, I guess, my apologies for cutting you off. What is the difference from your approach or is it the similar approach from somebody that's just gen pop trying to optimize their physique and a maintainable lifestyle? And then that individual that is getting ready to step on stage. For sure. Um, there is a difference, honestly, for some gen pop people, I just have them hit a protein like target range. So let's just say it's like between 170 and 190 protein. And then I give them a calorie maximum that I don't want them exceeding. And I let them fill in their fats and carbs as they please. Um, so that gives them more flexibility. Um, it's a little bit less structured, um, but it still ticks the big boxes of, hey, the person's getting adequate protein and hey, they're in a calorie deficit. So um, that works out really well. Um, to go back to Chris's question really quick, should it be taught in schools? Um, I mean, I feel like everything that we learn in school in regards to nutrition, at least when I was in school was more so sports nutrition related on performance. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it can be taught to a certain extent, but there's something that you, you gain and learn a lot more just working with people one-to-one -one than you ever will from a textbook or listening to somebody lecture on something. So I think that kind of plays an important role. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things that I mean, a lot of people realize after they do school, they learn all these sound foundational things. They learn that, okay, carbs is obviously going to give you more energy. So doing it on your training days would make more sense. It's going to help reduce soreness if you pair it right with protein and things like that. Um, but is there anything that I'm missing? Uh, carb cycling uh, is, of course, beneficial for those things. It's beneficial for maintaining your metabolism because you're going to have that higher amount of calories. Is there any, is there anything magical about helping it aid in uh, non-lean body mass reduction or anything like that? Yes and no. So it's kind of indirect, right? 
Um, let's just theoretically say we have two people that are in a 500 calorie deficit. Um, one's on lower carbs, higher fat, and one's on higher carb, lower fat. And, and then you have someone that's kind of utilizing both approaches where they're taking training day macros and non-training day macros. I will say that if someone's consuming a more appropriate amount of carbohydrate on their training days, their muscle glycogen may not be as depleted. Um, their performance is going to be better. And if their performance is better acutely and chronically, that should lead to more lean body mass gains or lean body mass retention during a deficit. So it's not because like, oh, having the, the high carb days or the low carb days um, in itself allowed them to retain lean body mass. But if that's improving their performance and improving their recovery, it indirectly is leading to better body composition outcomes. So yeah, it's a very like indirect kind of um, like snowball effect, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to touch like feeling good during your workouts so you can give it your all is really important. However, when you're dieting, that's not always the case. So what are some approaches you take? Uh, I guess we can stick just with the bodybuilding uh, population. Sure. What approach do you take when looking to cut fat mass only? Is, is it caloric surplus first? How do you adjust cardio? Um, those type of things. Sure. Yeah, if the primary goal is fat loss, um, if this person is relatively trained and they have training experience, um, they're definitely going to go into a calorie deficit. Whereas if I have somebody that's like a true novice, doesn't have a lot of lifting experience, I'm probably going to put them at caloric maintenance or maybe even a surplus if they're extremely skinny and not that high in body fat. Um, and then if you have somebody that's a novice, but they're very overweight or obese, then they're probably going to go into a deficit as well, just because they really need to lose fat first and foremost. So that can kind of depend. Um, interestingly enough, you can kind of lose fat even at caloric maintenance, you know, you can recomp there. So you don't have to go into a deficit. And I think that's actually one problem a lot of people make right off the bat, because if you do go into a deficit, your likelihood of adherence actually decreases things like hunger start to go up and then performance can decrease if you're not like crossing your T's and dotting your I's. So I actually recommend a lot of like true novices that just want to improve their body that again, aren't obese, but aren't jacked just to eat at maintenance, focus on high protein, focus on things like nutrient timing, make sure that their big rocks are in place and they'll see really solid body recomposition outcomes occur. Um, so it totally depends on the experience level, man. And I think, you know, you, you and I, I believe it was Jeremy um, wrote a really good paper on how to body recomposition and just what that de define is. And I think there for a while, it was like, Hey, you can recomp no matter what you do. And I think what you were trying to say, even if you were experienced, it could happen you just kind of have to take your time. And as you said, dot your T's cross or dot your I's cross your T's yeah. do all that. So how are you? Cause I, I remember watching one of your videos and meal timing was something that you kind of try to say, Hey, we have to optimize this window, especially if you want to, I guess, optimize body composition as you become more trained. Can you kind of go into a little bit more detail of how you would approach that situation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll talk about like pre-workout nutrition first and foremost. 
Um, this is an opportunity for you to, again, maximize muscle protein synthesis before you go into a training session. So that's going to reduce the likelihood of kind of going catabolic while you're training or losing any lean body mass while training gives you an opportunity to provide your body with the appropriate fuel sources so you can perform at a high level. So you obviously need a good amount of blood glucose present. Um, so your body doesn't have to tap into glycogen stores and everything like that. Um, so the way I like approaching things kind of depends on like how far away is your workout, um, from the time that you're eating, but I'm a big fan of utilizing low glycemic carbohydrates. And I generally recommend two different forms of carbohydrates. So this is deemed as multiple transportable carbohydrates. Um, in the scientific literature, it's usually seen in endurance athletes. Um, it's not too common to see this at all in resistance exercise, but you can take these principles and kind of apply it. Um, so you're going to provide your body with a starchy, low glycemic carbohydrate source and a fruit source. So that starchy, low glycemic, uh, that starchy source is going to break down into glucose and um, a certain percentage of that fruit that you're consuming is going to break down into fructose. And your body has different transport proteins that transport carbohydrates differently. So this makes the digestion, the utilization and the absorption of those carbohydrates much more efficient. Um, so I'm a big fan of doing that. And just to provide the listeners with a number, I generally recommend consuming one gram of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight. So if you're 70 kilos, you're going to have around 70 grams of carbs in that pre-workout meal. And then um, you also want to make sure you're having a sufficient amount of protein. So for most people, that's as low as 25 grams of protein and usually as high as like 55 grams of protein, depending on how big the person is. Um, but yeah, you want to make sure that you're providing yourself with a large bolus of protein, maximizing the pro protein synthetic response, and then going into the gym with the appropriate fuel sources and substrates in your bloodstream. And after, uh, focusing on the pre-workout meal, what, what about after workout and following meals after that? And I guess what if that, do you change this based on what time of the workout or the, what time of the day the workout's going to be at as well? Yeah. Um, I change it based on client preferences, but not necessarily time of day. Um, so if someone trains at 8am or 8pm, I would keep the, the pre and post like foundational constructs very, very similar. Um, one thing I will say is some people just prefer training first thing in the morning because of their lifestyle, um, or their schedule, their work schedule, their family schedule, whatever it may be. In that case, they might not eat a pre-workout meal. Um, but they may utilize some intra-workout nutrition, something as simple as like Gatorade or essential amino acids. Um, that might be just enough to minimize any sort of catabolism while they're training. But then the post-workout is going to be the same where you want to replenish muscle glycogen. You want to maximize protein synthesis again and really just take advantage of that recovery. Um, so yeah, the, the post-workout meal is typically a higher glycemic carbohydrate. So rather than doing something like sweet potato or oats, you might do something like white rice or a faster digesting cereal, whatever it may be. And then um, you also want a protein source that's going to digest pretty quickly. So if you're utilizing a supplement like whey protein isolate, 
that's a great option. If you're utilizing whole food, you probably want something that's going to digest a bit quicker. So something like fish or chicken um, or some sort of ground meat is going to digest a lot faster than something like a ribeye steak or a sirloin steak, just as, a, just as an example. So um, the post-workout meal is super important. Again, high glycemic carbohydrates there rather than low glycemic carbs. And I actually recommend anywhere from one to 1.5 grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight. So if you're that 70 kilogram male, um, you might have anywhere from like 70 grams of carbs all the way up to like 115 grams of carbs, depending on what phase you're in, you know, if you're cutting, bulking or maintaining. So a lot of the, just, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a lot of the meal timing or frequency that you're focusing on is all around based around the workout. Is there any other meal timing thing, uh, key, key main important topics that you'll, you'll sort of touch on with clients besides around the workout? Um, yeah, man. So meal frequency is interesting. The, the pre and post is definitely most important to me again, not to, to sound super repetitive because performance is really important and recovery is really important. So those are the two staples that are going to basically ensure that you're maximizing both of those variables. Um, in regards to other meals that comes down to the client's meal frequency that they prefer right now, like I'm only eating four meals per day, which is actually really strange for me. Um, I typically eat five or six meals per day in my off seasons, but right now, because I'm cutting, I'm enjoying having larger meals less frequently. So I focus on my pre and post, and then I usually have a breakfast and a pre sleep meal or like a dinner and that's it. Um, which again, to a normal person, four meals per day is totally normal, but to a bodybuilder who's used to eating five or six times per day, it's actually like on the lowest end of the frequency I've ever been. Um, so yeah, it's really about finding that sweet spot for you and your client. You know, what is their work schedule? Like what's their family situation like? Um, but Hey, at the very least they nailed their pre and post. So even if they're doing three meals per day, that's probably going to be like a breakfast or a dinner. And if they're doing four meals per day, it's probably going to be breakfast, pre and post, and then dinner or like pre-sleep meal. So yeah, it just totally depends. Um, if you guys have any specific questions, definitely let me know. So what if an individual is on that three meal side and just having uh, food before and after a workout, or maybe they just can't handle like food in their stomach while working out? Mm -hmm. uh, let's stick with the first example though. Someone has three meals they can't do before and after because it'll just take up two major meals that they need. Would you rather recommend post-workout or pre-workout meals? Um, that's tough to say. I mean, again, if they're in a deficit, I would say pre-workout because it's going to really drive their performance. If they're in a surplus and they have plenty of muscle glycogen and they have plenty of energy reserves to tap into, probably post-workout. It also depends on what kind of training they're doing. You know, are they going to the gym for 45 minutes? and doing like a, a full body workout, or are they training for, you know, 75, 90, two hours? Um, that's going to kind of impact how important that pre-workout meal is, right? If someone's training for just 45 minutes, they're kind of getting in and getting out. That pre-workout meal isn't as important compared to someone who's in there for an hour and a half plus. 
Now, I think, you know, it's interesting because, again, you've been in the game for a long time. You've conducted research now and, you know, you coaching clients and I would even say coaching yourself. What are some things that if you would be able to talk to Chris five, maybe even 10 years ago, what would you tell him? Hey, man, you don't even need to be doing this stuff. Kind of chill out, uh, because I think a lot of the stuff that, you know, we're currently talking about, maybe even meal timing is something that maybe I'm just ignorant I don't really focus on too much, but I think as a lifter in itself, it kind of just comes naturally, right? I don't really have a pre-workout meal because, hey, I, I train relatively early. Post-workout is going to be right there, relatively high protein, carbohydrates. And then I kind of just, right now, just having a protein, a calorie goal, just because that's a little bit more flexible for me. I don't have to be super rigid and I'm not trying to cut for a weight class or anything like that. Sure. It's something that before, holy shit, if I didn't have my Gatorade and creatine pre-workout and I didn't have all of this lined up. It was like, yo, I, I, why am I even working out? It, it, it just was out the window. So or anything like that, that you would tell you our listeners and even yourself way back when, Hey man, just chill out and just train hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, I used to like in my off seasons, I was having six meals per day, not necessarily because of like an appetite thing, but there was plenty of times, like quick example, I would eat dinner at like, 8 p.m. with my lady and then I didn't I like limited the amount of protein I had at, at that meal like let's just say I had like 45 grams then I would eat again like I would just have another protein shake again at like 11 at night sometimes I would like pass out at the couch at 10 like wake up like eyes half shut and like down my protein whereas like hey idiot if I just had a larger protein bolus in the meal before I can kind of just go to bed like a normal human and not like stress about getting in this extra protein feeding, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I never really have like really large protein boluses in the past and that's something I'm doing now. And it's just making my life easier. Like eating four times per day is easier than eating six times per day. Um, but one thing I will say is I can get away with this right now in a deficit because my overall calories are low, but when I'm trying to eat 4,000 calories per day, it's really hard to eat a thousand calorie meals over and over and over. So I might have to transition back to the higher meal frequency just so I can fit in all my food. Um, so we'll kind of see what the future has in store, but, um, yeah, it's, it's important to, you know, take a step back, analyze what you're doing and see what you may be able to adjust to make your life uh, a little bit more efficient not, you know, it's not going to take away from the progress, but it's just going to take a little bit of stress off of you and make the process a little bit more efficient. So that's a, that's a great question you had, man. And, you know, someone that you, again, you work with a lot of competitors, you're a competitor yourself. Now I've always been a fan, even if it's gen pop, I think the most important diet is always post diet that either reverse or recovery. Now, however, you're going to utilize, yeah. I predominantly Kind of right. I always like to use four to three, five to two methods with refeeds or carb cycling, however terminology you want to use. And I like to slowly make the refeed or carb higher carb days their predominant days. And that's how I utilize, I guess, a reverse or recovery. But my question is, how are you utilizing either a reverse or a recovery, or which one do you utilize at all? Yeah, dude, this is super individual. So there are some clients where like you can add in a hundred calories per day and they'll start gaining weight, like unequatedly quick, like mathematically, it doesn't make sense. Right. 
Whereas you have other clients, you could add in 300 calories per day, 500 calories per day, right off the bat. And they'll be like right back at maintenance and they're not gaining. Um, so for the people that have, like, I would say slower metabolisms, um, or they're, they're kind of like chronic dieters. They have like longer history of dieting. I do have to generally take a slower, steady approach. So more of like that older school reverse diet. Whereas with somebody that just has a better metabolism or less diet history, you can kind of get them more into like a recovery phase where, yeah, they're eating 500 calories more per day, right off the bat, they're out of the deficit immediately and they just respond really well. And then from there, you're bumping up their calories based on their response. Um, I think it's really important to not just have like, okay, this is the approach I take and I apply it to everybody. A lot of people take like nutrition and exercise science and they treat it like it's a religion where it's like, oh, this is, this is the shit I do. And I don't do anything else because this is in my, this is in my nutrition and exercise philosophy book that I practice. And it's like, you need to adjust your practice based on each person you're working with. Um, also, some people freak out. Some people are like, oh, if I gain, you know, three to five pounds, like I'm not going to be happy with myself. Um, so obviously you need to work on their psychological state, but you also need to take that into account. Whereas some people are like, yo, I hate feeling like this. I hate my diet face. I look like a skeleton. Get me the hell out of here. Let's eat up again. So everyone's a little bit different. And I think you mentioned something that is really hard for people, uh, especially people that need to slowly increase their calories because we have a lot of chronic dieters, I feel like in our society. So uh, I just wanted to ask some more questions on that. Yeah. What are some ways that I guess you try to uh, either inhibit the additional fat gain when trying to reverse someone or possibly ways to help speed up the reverse process uh, by additional methods, I guess, maybe refeeds or any other methods that you could think of. Yeah, for sure. So I know a lot of people, they increase food and decrease cardio, like right away when they're recovering somebody or reversing somebody. For somebody that has a slower metabolism, um, I wouldn't actually do that. I would just increase food, but keep cardio in because if I drop their output, then I have like both sides of the scale working against them, not for them. Um, so I'd rather focus on one. It's like, Hey, we can either pull out cardio and keep food where it's at, or we can increase food and keep cardio where it's at. Um, so I think that's just an important consideration because I see a lot of people doing both at the same time rather than manipulating one variable at a time. Um, another thing to consider is when I'm dieting people down, my training volume is relatively low for them. Um, I like personally, I do two working sets per exercise. Um, they're very, very intense. They're generally like very close to failure, um, but it's relatively low volume. So as I'm feeding someone up and reversing them, I might add in one exercise to their workout plan, or I might add in an additional working set. And it doesn't sound like much, but that little additional output or that new stimulus, cause they're doing a new movement or a new exercise, um, that can really help them handle another 25 grams of carbs, as silly as that sounds. And that can kind of get them to be at maintenance rather than that weight really sticking to them and them gaining weight faster than they'd like. Um, plus they're usually feeling better when they're eating more 
So now they can handle a little bit more training volume. Um, so yeah, those are some things that you can consider, you know, manipulating cardio or manipulating training volume as their food starts to come up. I think that's a great point that you said, man, you can't make too many changes because that creates a lot of noise. I mean, you create a lot of noise. You can't really pinpoint, Hey, what actually worked. And we can't really go back to, you know, Hey, last fat loss phase or recovery phase. You did really good. You responded really well. Let's try this again. And if it works well, we'll keep rolling with it. Um, but now I, since you're <clears throat> kind of touching on that training and I want to say you were on the paper where you guys at U UT was, I, I thought it was a really good conducted study where it was individuals are allowed to select their own exercise variation. Um, yeah. And that's something that, you know, I drive to a lot of my clients to say, I want you to be as autonomous as possible. Yeah. Maybe at the beginning is I'll kind of be the captain and let you know what to do. But yeah. there comes a certain point where I guess, right. If we're increasing calories, you can go ahead and increase that intensity based on how you feel that day. And I really enjoyed how you were able to, Hey, educate that client and say, Hey, if this feels good, let's keep rolling. But, but you allow them to self-select, but can you go into detail of how you would auto-regulate either via exercise selection, intensity, volume, whatever it may be for a client going into a show and then possibly coming out to it. How are you auto-regulating? Are you kind of being that captain and say, Hey, we need to do this, this, and this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great question, man. So I'm going to provide a couple of different examples right now, this past weekend, I had two girls compete. It was their first competition they've ever done. So they're, they're true novices. Um, and I was in control of their training to a very large degree where like everything that's on the spreadsheet is what they need to do. Um, they can obviously let me know if something's not feeling right and we'll make an adjustment, but they were basically extremely adherent to that spreadsheet. Um, whereas I have another client that's competing later this year. She's been doing this longer than me. She's been lifting longer than me. She's, a she's been competing for, I think at least 10 years. And, um, the way I structure her program is she has three days per week where she hits my training program on the spreadsheet. And like, she's focused on progressive overload on these specific exercises and then there's three days per week where she goes into the gym and she does whatever the hell she wants because she's so experienced. She knows like, okay, how my body's feeling today, what I want to hit, what exercises I want to do. And that keeps it fun for her, right? Um, so even if the three days she does per week are a little bit different and there isn't, um, like she's not tracking loads and, and progressions on those three days, She's still enjoying herself. She's still training at a high level of effort. So she's still getting a positive stimulus and she's still going to progress. And then additionally, on the three days that she is following my structured program, that's where she's chasing progressive overload and, and being a little bit more objective about it instead of subjective about it. But as bodybuilders or as athletes, there's a part of it that is artistic. So if you can't tap into your artistic side and you're just focused on the objective scientific side, it takes the fun out of it for some people. So it's important to find that balance again, depending on the experience. If you have someone that's a true beginner, they walk into the gym and they're lost without having a plan. So they're not going to want to do, oh, I'm going to go into the gym and do whatever the hell I want. They want that plan because they kind of need it. Um, so you kind of need to find that for each person. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I think it's super important that over time, each client starts to let their coaches know like, Hey, this movement or this specific exercise, I have a great mind muscle connection with, I have a really good stimulus with it while I'm performing it. 
And I'm always kind of like getting sore from it the next day. Whereas, Hey, when I'm doing this movement, I feel it in my lower back a lot instead of my quads or glutes, my back sore the next day, I'm really tired the next day, but my quads and glutes aren't sore. We need that kind of feedback. So you can program the proper exercises for each person because not each exercise is going to fit each individual, um, you know, to a good degree or to a bad degree. So you got to kind of find that sweet spot as well. Yeah. You fucking hit it on the head there, man, because I think a lot of people, their merit, and I'll even say I have a bias because I power lifter SBD. It's the great movements. We can do all that. We can overload progressively. Uh, but if somebody's just not, I guess, feeling it or adapting well to it, right? I think the beautiful thing about bodybuilding, as long as you're able to target a specific muscle group, it doesn't matter what the hell you're doing, as long as you're getting that stimulus on it. And I think, as you said, this holy book of, hey, this is my way or the highway, we got to get away from that. Uh, because I think a lot of us or some coaches, they forget it's about the client. It's not about me. It's not about you or anything like that. We're just trying to help individuals be successful uh, within their sport or their goal. I guess, you know, another question for you, and I think you hit it on the head a little bit earlier is, right, you're trying to hit that minimal dose effect of, right, two working sets where a lot of us is like, like I, I even made a face. I was like, two, that's it. And a lot of people look at you like, what the hell? Like, how are you? I guess, portraying that or getting that buy-in from a client that, hey, man, we don't need to do too much. I'd rather you recover from a workout, get that minimal dose effect and focus, again, getting out of that, that catabolic state from working out. 100%. Um, I keep it really simple for them. So I tell them, if you're a true beginner, right, if you've never lifted in your life before and you go into the gym and you do one set of bicep curls to failure, you're going to be sore the next day from doing one set of bicep curls to failure. Obviously you're a true beginner, but from there you want to build off of that one set. So what do you do after you do one set, you do two sets, and then that's going to be enough. And then eventually you do three sets. Um, but it doesn't need to be of the same exercise because we're doing multiple exercises, right? So let's just say like yesterday I did legs, I did two true working sets of hack squats and two true working sets of leg extension. And that was it for my quads. Like that was really, really it. And I've been doing this for a while, but um, as you get stronger, your ability to produce force at higher intensities increases, like your ability to give it more effort and give it more intensity. Like there's a certain skill that comes with training closer and closer to failure. Um, rather than saying like, yeah, there's no way I could have done another one, but you actually could have done like three or four more. There's a skill that comes over time. So I think the longer you've been training, you kind of learn how to get closer and closer to true failure. Um, so, and you're also stronger. So the magnitude of the stimulus you're providing your body with is already higher. So there's a difference between somebody squatting 400 pounds and someone squatting 135 pounds, even if that's 80% of their one RM. Like people think it's relative because it's a percentage of their one RM, but it's not like there's a, there's an absolute magnitude difference there, even though the relative intensity is the same, the absolute intensity is different. So as you become more advanced, you can find ways to do less, but still have a very high level of stimulus. And then another thing I'll say is I think in the past, I was personally training too high volume, especially during my contest preps. And I think, especially as a natural athlete, 
my muscle protein breakdown was probably so freaking high because I was doing so much volume that even though I was, I was creating a, a, a protein synthetic response from the training stimulus, I wasn't able to have more protein synthesis than muscle protein breakdown. So I think I was losing muscle during my diets, not because my protein intake wasn't high enough because it absolutely was. It's just because my training volume was so high that I was digging this ditch that I couldn't refill. Um, so right now I'm just trying to get, I'm focusing on quality of stimulus rather than quantity of stimulus. And uh, it's, it's working well right now for me. Yeah. Quality over quantity has got to be the name of the game here, especially yeah. again with exercise, because there's no, it's anybody can be in there for two to three hours. And it's like, what did you get done? I'd rather you be in there for 45 minutes, get some quality work in and get the hell out of there. So you can enjoy life. I'd rather, you know, bodybuilders, you guys are, I always say you guys are freaks in nature. Cause y'all you got, you see one thing and it's like, I'm gonna run at it and just don't bother me. And I, I, I admire it. Uh, yeah. But me, I'm kind of lax in what I see from a lot of bodybuilders this is how I was with basketball. It was like, Yo, if you're in my way, you better wash the hell out because I'm going to kill you. Like literally that mama mentality. That's how I was. Um, and that's how I am with powerlifting because I think more it's an objective measure than I think as a subjective uh, a way of, you know, going about things. But sure. with with a lot of how you felt or even a lot of how even your clients feel with certain training, what is the type of biofeedback are you requesting? Or is it like, you know, RPE session or just, hey, as you said before, are you feeling this or are you not? Are you sore in the wrong areas or what, what, how are you, I guess, auto-regulating or, or requesting biofeedback for, from your clients? Yeah. So on a weekly basis, I ask for general biofeedback, which is literally um, stress, hunger, overall recovery, energy, digestion, and sleep. So those are like six things I ask for on a weekly basis, but a little bit more specific to training. I'm looking at, okay, are you progressing on your lifts? Are you getting good pumps in the gym? Um, obviously, are you just maintaining weight or regressing on your lifts? Then there's clearly something we need to address. Um, are you no longer getting good pumps in the gym? Probably something we need to address. Um, how are you feeling on the first two to three exercises compared to the last two to three exercises? Like, are you clearly running out of gas towards the end of the session? Um, and then also, what's your motivation like to train? Are you still excited to get after it? Are you like, shit, I got to go to the gym today. I'm not really looking forward to it. So those are some of the general questions I ask. And then based on that, we can make adjustments to address whatever's going on. I like it. Yeah, I, I do a very similar approach. And I think from what, some of the podcasts we've had in the, 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 the past, it's like, if you're asking these type of questions, some coaches demonize it. It's like, that's just lazy coaching. Why are you even in, taking into account how, what the client feels or or yeah. as you said before, that one example of giving that individual three days of, hey, you can go get jacked and tan, do whatever you want to yeah. do. Um, some people think that, hey, that's lazy coaching. But in the end, you're giving that autonomy to that client. And as you said before, if autonomy and adherence and excitement is there, that intensity effort is going to be through the roof. And hopefully that body composition will improve itself. 100%. Uh, I think the last topic we really want to cover is, and Chris, I know I'm talking way too much again. <laughs> uh, bottom, Chris. It's all right. You uh, at least let me talk a little bit, but peak week, Chris, what, uh, what approaches do you like to take for peak week? I guess you could give the approaches you've attempted, the approaches you personally still do. I guess it is of course an individual basis. So could you just elaborate on the different approaches to take and which ones you try to focus on? Yeah. Um, I like to mention like 
what's the purpose of peak week or, or what are we actually trying to peak? And then therefore we can look at, okay, what variables do we need to manipulate in order to do so? Um, so first and foremost, your physique is going to look better if you are no longer depleted as you were throughout this contest prep deficit and you are now full and recharged and your muscle glycogen is capped out. Um, so that's a huge goal of peak week is to restore muscle glycogen and even restore like intramuscular triglycerides. So we do store some fatty acids within the muscle as well. And that can help a little bit with overall cell volume. Um, so that's important. Also a fresh physique looks way better than a fatigued physique. So we kind of want to deload, take physiological stress and psychological stress off the body. So you're not going into the gym and beating yourself to the ground like you have been throughout the entire contest prep. You're kind of treating this peak week um, training more as like a deload session where everything's at lower intensities, slightly lower volumes, um, and you're feeling better and better as the week goes on, essentially, especially once the carbs start coming in. Um, so there's a lot of different approaches that you can take to peak week. I generally run a depletion phase the first three days of the peak week. So it could be like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, um, we're depleting glycogen to get this super compensation effect that again has been seen more so in endurance athletes. Um, but essentially by depleting muscle glycogen on three days of low carbs, and then feeding them extremely high carbs for two days, we're going to get this super compensation effect where now they're actually storing more muscle glycogen than they could have or would have if they didn't do this depletion phase. Um, so that has the overall muscle volume increase. So it looks like the muscles pushing uh, against the skin a little bit more, creating a tighter look, a fuller look. Um, which is super, super important, especially when you're flexing and hitting these poses on stage. And then we can manipulate some other variables like water and sodium. Um, so do you want me to be like a little bit more specific with some numbers and, and give you guys some context there? Uh, yeah. I mean, so generally speaking, uh, let's dive into two other things first. And then if we yeah. need to go into the more specifics, we can, sure. what about the, the front or either back loading approach. So you mentioned your Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you'll yeah. go deplete and then two really high days. Are those two really high days just generally like two, three times the amount of carbs that they would normally take at maintenance or, uh, and then do you taper them off from there or do you find the sweet spot based off picture check-ins or what's that following steps after that? Yeah, for sure. So after the depletion phase, um, which is, very keto-esque to a sense because for me i do higher fat super low carb but then it's way higher protein than keto would actually be um, it kind of looks keto-esque but it kind of isn't um, those high carb days a good number for maximizing muscle muscle glycogen is 10 to 12 grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight um, and again earlier in the podcast i used that 70 pound uh, that 70 kilogram uh, male as an example. So they would eat anywhere from 700 carbs all the way up to 850 carbs, just as an example. Um, and again, that can be in one day, that can be in two days, um, depending on 
how the client has previously responded to refeed days, you probably have a good idea of how much they're going to need. Um, but yeah, that 10 to 12 gram is like usually the minimum required to feed someone over a two day time span. Um, but you need to understand like, all right, you've been working with this person for at least 12, 16 weeks. They've had refeeds before. What were their refeed macros at and, and how full did they get from that alone? Um, so those are some of the specific numbers. And then it's also important that when I am doing a backload and I am carb loading them towards the end of the week, that's where I actually increase water as well um, for two reasons. One, it can help with carbohydrate utilization and transportation. Um, but two, I also want to create a little bit of a diuresis effect where I'm increasing urine output and I'm trying to make sure that this client isn't going to retain any water or hold any water like subcutaneously, which can negatively impact their look. So I'm not sure. Have you guys ever dieted down to like pretty darn lean levels? No, I have uh, not. I would say, yeah, I would say my lowest I've gotten for a powerlifting competition was 175 and now I'm at 190-ish. Okay, cool. So I don't know if you noticed this, but most people look their leanest or crispest first thing in the morning. They look way leaner first thing in the morning, especially like they wake up, you go, you take a piss, you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, I look drier. I look crispier. And then as you start rehydrating throughout the day, you get a little bit more blurry, like your midsection might not be as lean. Now you can imagine if you're someone who's like 4% body fat or 5% body fat, you might look super, super freaky in first thing in the morning. And then just like a little bit more blurry in the evening, still very impressive, but not like ideal. So by manipulating water and increasing diuresis, the goal is to basically keep that dry, crispy look, especially for stage that most people have first thing in the morning, but they can't maintain throughout the entire day. Um, and again, during the carbohydrate load, I'm also increasing sodium. It's usually like 25% above baseline that can help with carbohydrate transportation utilization. Um, and then on that Friday, if I loaded them on Wednesday and Thursday, I might kind of decrease their carbs back to their normal moderate level, um, increase their fats a bit, increase, increase their proteins a bit and pull back on the water a tad. Um, so I just want to, I want to give some random numbers so people aren't just lost. Let's just say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, somebody was drinking 1.5 gallons of water throughout their entire prep. They're probably going to drink that Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Like it doesn't, it doesn't change on uh, Wednesday and Thursday while they carb load, they can drink anywhere from like two to 2.5 gallons of water. And then on that Friday, I'm not cutting water by any means, but I am reducing it. So instead of having 2.5 gallons or two gallons, they might go down to um, a max of 1.5 and no less than a gallon. But when you take someone from 2.5 gallons to one gallon, that's actually a very significant drop off. And it does lead to like, um, again, increased diuresis, increased urine output, and that can impact the total body water that you're holding on to. So um, those, are, those are some practices that I've employed. And I don't know if you guys saw, but recently my colleagues and I put out a review paper on peak week. So it's uh, the head author that spearheaded it is my man, Dr. Guillermo Escalante. 
out in California. And then uh, the other authors are Dr. Scott Stevenson, um, Alan Aragon, and Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. So it's a really cool uh, research review paper on peak week strategies. Um, and it's the first of its kind. So if anyone's really interested in the nitty gritty and the science of peak week, definitely check it out. It's open access, free to read. Yeah, we'll definitely have to put that in the show notes because I'm not really familiar with any peak week. I've never worked with a physique athlete and I take the stand of, hey, I've never done it. I don't think I can relate to an individual. Um, so I'm going to stay in my lane. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, it sounded very almost kind of similar how I would, you know, take a water cut approach of, right, you're increasing water relatively high, almost doubling it, bringing carbs r- really pr- pretty much low anywhere for 50, depending on where the individual is, keeping fats and calories and protein relatively the same. Um, and you're slowly kind of tapering off that water. My question is with that, you're, you, the numbers that you threw out seven, 700 grams or 850 grams of carbs, are you, how are you allowing somebody to, I guess, you know, increase or just net activity? Because I feel like if somebody's eating that much, as well as trying to increase water, won't they feel just a little bit bloated and kind of retain a little bit more of that, I guess, flatter look uh, with that peak week strategy? Yeah. Um, so you'll be surprised, like these bodybuilders that are lean, they're so freaking hungry that they put down these 700 carbs, 800 carbs relatively easily. And we're very careful with the food sources we select. So like, I would never do 700 grams of carbs from like something like a potato that is really satiating, has a lot of food volume. You know what I'm saying? Um, but something like white rice is really easy to digest. Something like rice cereals are really easy to digest. So we're being really smart with the food sources we're utilizing. Sometimes we do liquid carbs like Gatorade or like a pomegranate juice. Um, sometimes we even do like mango sorbets, like stuff that goes down easy, right? Um, but yeah, th- those numbers, again, it was 10 to 12 grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight. So if I have a 120 pound bikini chick compared to a 190 pound bodybuilder, you know, the carb load's gonna be totally different. Um, but it's cool that you mentioned you obviously have done water manipulation coach for powerlifting. Um, I've worked with MMA athletes before, and I've worked with um, like this, a bodybuilder this past weekend. He had to make weight before doing his carb load. So we had to lose nine pounds in 36 hours, and we somehow got the job done. And then I had to carb load him after in an 18 hour window because he had to step on stage the next day. So that was like the funnest peak week I've ever done. Um, But there's a really cool study by Rial and colleagues on combat athletes where they did a water manipulation cut for them. And their protocol was they did three days of 100 milliliters of water per kilogram of body weight. And then that fourth day, they did 15 milliliters of water per kilogram of body weight. So it's, it's a lot of, lot of water to very, very little water. And that creates that diuresis effect and that creates a much lighter scale weight. So it's probably similar to stuff the power lifters do. Um, how much weight have you had to cut, you know, for, for a weigh in and, and how did you kind of go about it? Uh, the most I've ever had to cut was about 12 to 15 pounds. Uh, never will I do that again because I performed like shit, caught a nice, like almost cramp in my hamstring. Uh, so now I like to be, you know, a little bit more proactive and say, Hey, only eight to nine pounds. Uh, but I think, you know, this time go around, I'll just go into an upper, 
upper uh, weight class so I can just have fun. And, you know, I'm not going to break any records uh, thus far anymore. So I'm just going to chill and try to just gain some strength and put on some lean body mass at the, the higher weight class now. Nice. And, and they have you weigh in the day before or the day of? Yeah. So the, the federation I'll compete in is 24 hours before. Um, and I would say, you know, my first time I ever water cut and why I asked you that question was I just ate like an asshole. Like <laughs> I just went all in. Like I, I, I vividly remember going to uh, BJ's and literally two my, my appetite, I had two appetizers, two entrees and a dessert. Yeah. And oh my, like I felt bloated. I felt gross. Um, and then did it the next time. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to space out my meals yeah, yeah, yeah. after that 24 and, you know, walk a little bit more. So it kind of, you know, goes and flows a little bit better. Um, and I performed a little bit better, but I think, you know, that was specifically to break three state records. And now I'm the guy that just broke my records. I, at that weight, I don't think I would even come close. It's like, Hey, just, just have fun. Maybe have a longer career in this powerlifting thing and yeah, just yeah, not yeah. do that to yourself. That's cool, man. That's what's up. So. But yeah, I mean, Chris, for I, again, we appreciate your time and, you know, your knowledge is definitely there. Um, we'll definitely have to have you on for a part two, even though we predominantly got through everything. We just want to be courtesy of your time uh, for our listeners that, again, don't know where to find you. You can drop out some knowledge and we'll definitely put out some of those uh, recent publications with, uh, you know, body composition. And as you said before, uh, with, you know, peak week strategies as well. But go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you uh, and your services. Yeah, absolutely, man. You guys can, uh, in terms of social media, I'm most active on uh, Instagram. Um, not super, super active, but most active there. It's at Christopher.Barricat, just my full name. Um, for educational resources, so articles, um, videos, uh, all my research papers published, whatever it may be, you can check out schoolofgains.com and gains is spelt with a Z. Um, and then also on there, you can find an amazing nutritional book that me and Jeff Nippard wrote together. And that's called the ultimate guide to body recomposition. So what I can do for you listeners, I can uh, set up a coupon code. I'll use the, the code smoke for all the smoke podcasts. And you guys can grab that at like 15% off. So definitely check that out. That goes over how to set up your diet for performance recovery, and obviously body recomposition. It dives into the nitty gritty of carb cycling and, and basically everything. Um, so yeah, that's where you guys can find me. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me a DM or uh, reach out to me through my website. And I look forward to hearing from you guys. Got it. And that's all the smoke from Mr. Chris Barricott. And if you haven't got, got it from him, make sure you go get that 50% off ebook um, and make some gains, big guys. All right, man, we appreciate y'all.